On the program, I guess it was last week, we talked about how we were overcome with the World Cup. Unfortunately, what we were overcome with was ennui. In recognition of the fact that uh, many people out there enjoy the World Cup soccer or football, as it is known to the rest of the world, we thought it prudent to bring on the program someone whose views may be seen as somewhat counterpoint to my own. Therefore, with great gusto, we welcome back to the program our good pal Matt Perry, who is a writer covering the health beat for the Sacramento News and Review, but also an aficionado of movies and sports. Welcome back, Matt. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here. And of course, we know that the health of America is tied in closely with the World Cup. So those do... In fact, I did are, not know that. It, well, it's very true. I mean, there, you know, there have been scientific studies equating good health with uh, a true understanding and appreciation of uh, international soccer or football. I suppose then that uh, my health may be somewhat in question in the near future, being that I don't, I don't think that... Uh, that appreciation thing is going to grow anytime soon. Have you been to the doctor recently? Have you been tested? <laughs> no, I rely upon, uh, I guess I use myself as my, my doctor, which is proving the old saying that a doctor who treats himself does have a fool for a patient. I'm not going to touch that one, Doug. I like <laughs> you too much. <laughs> you know, I, I admit, I admit, I just, I, I'm, not, I'm not excited about watching soccer because to me it's guys kicking the ball from left to right and then kicking the ball from right to left. But one thing you don't see a whole lot of is scoring, which I think is kind of an important part to a lot of sports. Well, first of all, let's step back a little bit and talk about the philosophy of soccer. I think, you know, you're looking at soccer as just a sport. You have to look at it in a grander scheme. It's sort of like a a worldwide communion of, of <laughs> rabid fans. And I mean, first of all, is the World Series baseball? Is the World Series global? Is that a global event? Oh, God, no. 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 Okay. So well, the World Cup is one of the few truly global uh, events. Noted. Okay. I do so, not dispute that. All right. So let's move on to scoring. <laughs> I, first of all, Alan Watts, the noted Zen philosopher, uh, went on a rant once at one of his many rants, and he said, you know, are the best musicians the fastest? And so I apply that to sports, saying, are the best sports the ones with the highest amount of scoring? No, because basketball is nothing but scoring, and it's also a crashing bore, okay, in my well, opinion. That's good. Well, now, now let's make an equation to some other social events, sort of like marriage. Is it better off if you get the more you get married, the better marriage it, you have? Wait, wait, wait. Comparing... The lack of scoring in soccer to like the, 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 the exploits of Elizabeth Taylor getting married more often, I, I don't see the link. Okay, well then let's equate this to Richard Burton instead. Now, <laughs> if you talk about scoring, if you talk about the average Amer American male, the sort of low-brow, beer-guzzling man who's fixated on adolescent scoring, right? We say he lacks what, a cer what, wait, certain what, amount of maturity. What's adolescent about scoring? I think that if you've watched enough beer commercials, you know what what is adolescent about scoring. And do you know friends who are purely fixated on scoring? Do you consider them high in intelligence, high in IQ, high in maturity? No. Can we, can we define scoring? Well, I think you know what I'm talking about, Doug, unless it's been that long for you. We're mixing sexual metaphors with, with sports activities. Well, I'm trying to expand your understanding <laughs> well, of, you're, you're not of soccer. For, okay, well, let me ask you another question then. I understand that you don't truly understand the strategy behind soccer. There's a strategy? There is a strategy behind Please, soccer. Please, do tell. Well, look, I'm, first of all, I'm not a, a aficionado of soccer. I can't. I couldn't explain to you the different strategies involved, but I did find it uh, incredibly, I, I found it riveting. 
And the more I watched it, the more I got intrigued by uh, the personal the personal stories involved, the teams, the countries, you know, the Ghanaians being one of the few African teams left in, uh, I guess the only African team to make it in the uh, final 16. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. I think that stuff's great. I think that's the, the, the upside of international sports. I wish the Olympics would do more of that. Well, uh, okay, let's talk about strategy, though. I'm- all I see is a guy kicking the ball, and they kick the ball to some other guy who's trying to get some sort of rudiment of a play, but there's guys strewn about the field, and you don't ever get the sense that, you know, guy A is passing it to B to C who's going to pop it in the goal. Doug, let me, let me ask you a question. If you can't see or understand or follow the path of a subatomic particle? Does it mean it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing <laughs> oh, or doesn't have a certain intriguing beauty to it? <laughs> oh, brother. I you See, I think you're, you're missing the subtlety of soccer. You're no missing, doubt. You're missing the poetry, the philosophy, the team history. Boy, calling Dr. Andy. What do you mean poetry? It's a beautiful sport. You don't think it's beautiful? No. I think, I think you know what? I, I, if I had a choice between watching ants on an anthill and a, and a soccer match, I'd rather watch the ants. It seems more purposeful to me. You know, one of the things that I love about soccer is the lack of scoring, and here's why. Oh, every every play, every moment is fraught with tension because if you get if there's a play that gets anywhere near the goal, you you're on the edge of your seat. Um, just a ball that is two inches to one side, you know, a header, uh, a player hits it just barely off the side of his head instead of his forehead and it goes five feet wide instead of in the upper left corner of the goal there's there's something really beautiful about the element of chance in the game the, you know, the mix of tra- guys strike out has a certain appeal but i like to see him when he hit the ball into the stands you know it's just oh, call me crazy but you know i like to see him the wood hit the ball well wh- one thing i am is a, uh, a hockey aficionado and some of the most beautiful uh games in hockey are scoreless ties you watch a overtime game in hockey oh, and you have end to end action and near scores it's those are great games and i would say the same thing of soccer well um i think we're just gonna have to probably agree to disagree on this one i i know that people think that i'm i'm a rube that i'm a hayseed that i'm some kind of hick that i'm some kind of uh i don't know beer swilling american football fan which i'm not anymore though i used to be you know i think we should just agree that i'm right and just <laughs> Call it a day. Sure, bud. Because I know there's a lot of people that would like to have my scalp on this. When I bag on the World Cup every year, there are people just out there fuming. Actually, I've started a whole... uh, There's a protest in your front yard. As soon as we finish the show here, (laughs) they'll be out there in force. Good luck getting a quorum for that one. I suppose you don't like the Tour de France either. Uh, No, I think it's got some good scenery and some... you know. Well, I have to confess... It's supposed to be a team sport, but one guy gets to hog all the glory, and the other guys that are on the team with him are always like this, these like enablers, these like codependent guys that don't get the they don't get the credit. I, I don't understand that. Can you explain that to me? So you're equating the Tour de France with uh, AA? I think there are parallels. Okay. I think I think now we all know where you're coming from, Doug. We we we've seen the inside of your psychosis, and we don't want it anymore. All right, the Tour de France, beautiful scenery. Grueling races, drama each day is who, who's going to pull ahead, individual performances, and now it turns out that they're all seem to be cheating. 
I think that is very true. In fact, I saw Floyd Landis about four years ago. We had him on the show, by the way. Oh. During which time he vehemently denied the charges that he was cheating. I saw him on his book tour at Borders. Nicest guy in the world. Just, I mean, I just liked the guy left and right. And when he was done talking at Borders, I sat back in my chair and I said, this guy is lying through his teeth. <laughs> and so, well, and so, in that. And so four months ago, he came out. And I think that what is so readily apparent from that and any but any um, employee of any bike shop around the country will tell you the same thing there's no way that those guys can perform at that level without without some sort of doping and that is clearly an, indicates that that our good friend and american hero lance armstrong has done the same thing well there's even a strategy they were talking in new scientist magazine now they're actually trying to do to calculate what is basically humanly possible without without additives and they're going to be able to try and determine which guys are simply exceeding what a person could be doing without chemical assistance i would like to see that i would like to see uh sports without any sort of enhancement at all in fact you know what i'd really like to see i'd like to see radio show hosts doing their <laughs> gig without any enhancements i mean because i see things all around i mean what are these bottles over here i mean i don't even understand what some of those words are <laughs> This is now, I'm now facing an actual conspiracy of Mr. McMillan and the guest to indicate there's some sort of untoward behavior right going on here. No, I want to tell, I want to state for the record, since you're casting such aspersions, the radio parallax is at all times drug-free. Can somebody tell me what an aspersion is? I've never seen one. I wouldn't even know what it looked like if it came up and shook my hand. All right, according to my online free dictionary, uh, an aspersion is an unfavorable or damaging remark, a slander. So yeah, you're slandering me here, implying something that, of course, couldn't possibly be true. I'm slandering you, Floyd Landis, and Lance Armstrong. <laughs> How does it feel to be in that kind of company? Let's go, let's go back to soccer for a minute. Yeah, I, there's one thing I wanted to talk about was the flopping. Yeah, please, <laughs> the World please. Cup. Yeah, let's, let's talk about <laughs> that. These, is, these guys, the, the, I mean, the Oscars should be inspecting what these guys are up to. It's admittedly a huge embarrassment. When you see these guys flopping, I mean, they're barely touched, and they they fall like they've been shot, you know? Right. And it's, I mean, Screaming it's embarrassing. Screaming in pain got, with a hand over their eye or something, like they've been, you know. And, and they go down, and they're grabbing their head, and they're <laughs> acting like they're bleeding. And as soon as there's no foul call, then they just jump up like there's no problem. <laughs> the one thing they are doing, they do, which I had forgotten, was that if you uh, flop and you fall down and nobody, you haven't actually been touched, they will give you a yellow card. And a yellow car, card is horrible because you get two yellow cards and you're out wait, uh, for the wait, next game. to earn a yellow card... You have to f pretend to be hit, and it's, dem it's demonstrable that there was no physical contact? Correct. If you flop, and it's apparent, and it's wildly apparent that you flopped, and you weren't touched, you can get a yellow card. Are they using, uh, I mean, are they using uh, instant replay? No, they don't use any sort of instant replay, which is a real shame, because there have been a couple instances when that would have been So really does one helpful. judge look at the other and just say, hey, look, he's faking it, and the guy didn't even touch him? Uh, there's no instant replay in any World Cup, not for fouls, not for goals, not for offsides, nothing. They just play 90 minutes straight, no, no interruptions, no nothing. Well, then they have uh, extra time for yeah, any, you know, for any fouls, any time that the ball is dead for an extensive period. You know, Matt's usually... never going to catch on. It's never no, going to catch, catch on around the world, not right? in America. Right? In America. Oh, okay. Not I just want, thought you. I, no, would, I, mean, I was just no, was, no, wasn't things, sure if you realized that it was. That it was the world's the world. most popular sport. I know, and you dictatorships, were just, um, communism. A lot of things have caught on in other countries that didn't really catch hold here. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess I'm waiting for the Lindy to come back around now.
You know, let, let, let's let's quit talking about sports because we're going to go round and round. Let's talk about something we both are on the same page on. I think how much we enjoy the cinema. Let's do it. Let's talk about The Godfather. There was a write-up in the Week magazine a while back, but uh, I'm looking at the uh, the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader. They had a summary in their 19th edition about how The Godfather got made, and this is just you know it's a barn burner of a story. I know you know quite a bit of this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book was a huge bestseller. And they decided, well, it's got a you know inherent audience, built-in audience. Let's make a movie out of it. But uh, the original plan from Paramount was to like film it in mid in like Kansas City and on and on a back lot, make it cheap. They didn't care about the critical reaction. They wanted to just turn a quick profit. It was not an easy uh, film to make by Coppola, and there was a lot of uh, influence by the studio, especially uh, the producer Robert Evans. And he apparently uh, was going to make it for like a million bucks. And Coppola went in there one day, decided, I can do this. It's going to be about family. I see how this could go. And he apparently like just stood up on the table during the meeting and, and convinced them they had to increase the budget. And they, bu- they bumped it up to $6 million. There's a great bit of Coppola who talks about in this documentary called A Decade in, Under the Influence about the 70s. And Coppola says, you know, the great thing about the breakdown of the studio system is you could walk into an executive's office and say, you know what? It's your lucky day that I walked in here. You are so lucky that I've got a movie for you because I understand the audience. I understand what's going on out there, and you old farts don't. And that used to work? Well, if you I mean, look it worked at... For, it worked for him, I guess. Uh, certainly Beach Blanket Bingo and <laughs> some of the you know horrible movies that were coming out of Hollywood in the late 60s uh, were not making money, so they were looking to young filmmakers like Bogdanovich and Monty Hellman and Bob Rafelson and... Uh, it opened the door for people like Coppola. And we talked about with Dennis Hopper. I mean, they re- unexpected success with Easy Rider. They gave him a million dollars to go to Peru and make a movie, and he made the last movie, considered one of the worst movies ever made. But, well, that's you know, that's what happens when you give somebody carte blanche. Well, according to the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader, Paramount had decided regarding uh, Marlon Brando, um, I guess the president said, as long as I'm president of this studio, Marlon Brando will not be in this picture, and I will no longer allow you to discuss it. <laughs> and they fought against Al Pacino, too. And uh, Said Cop- the man's a midget. Yeah, Cop- it was Robert Evans. Yeah. Coppola, Coppola was really bold. I mean, Coppola took a lot of chances with that film. Well, I guess Coppola was determined to get Brando, and, and they were going to make him submit to the, the insult of a screen test. He told him it would just be like a little... A little uh, he said it'd be just a makeup test. Come on, <laughs> we'll, nice. we'll see how you look in makeup. Nice. And when they saw how he looked, the studio executives went from "We're not going to do Brando" to "This has to be Brando." I don't know that. I didn't know that story. That's a great story. You must have a Brando story, being a film person. Well, my favorite Brando story is from the movie "Hearts of Darkness," which is a documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now. And so Brando shows up in uh, the Philippines, way overweight. And he's been contemplating this script, and he's just hanging out talking with Coppola. So Coppola and Brando, the crew's sitting there waiting for days out in the jungle, and Coppola and Brando are talking and uh, doing some improvisation. And after three days, it suddenly hits Coppola that Brando has not read... Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness has no idea really what the essence of the story is. He doesn't look anything like he should. He's way overweight. He does not like 300 look, pounds or something. Yeah. Oh, it's embarrassing. And so that, that moment of the movie is hysterical. And, and you can see from some of the outtakes that Brando clearly has no clue what this film is about. The great documentary, Hearts of Darkness. 
Well, how did they manage to whip him into shape in the end? Just him? Do you think he's in shape? I don't think he's in shape. I think he's a fat slob in the whole movie. Well, I guess you can tell he looks kind of like Buddha, but he did, you know, they did at least filming, I guess, in really low light to, I guess, work around that and didn't show his body much. That's that, That's how they got away with it. <laughs> well, you know, my understanding is, uh, according again to Uncle John's, that they filmed 90 hours of footage and then they, they got it down to like just under three hours and then Paramount made him cut it down to two and a half and they decided, well, he left out so many good scenes they, they put it back up. And I know there was a, there's this Redux version of like a few years ago that, that came out and... and uh, well, I, as a part-time filmmaker myself, I have yet to see the film that's not better when it's shorter. So um, almost any director's cut, uncut version is longer, more dull, and you know, just because there's more of it does not mean it's any, any better. Well, the only, the only film I can speak to on that is JFK, and I, I do think in that one, the director's cut, the 14 minutes, 14 minute, 16 minutes, something like that extra, uh, it makes it a better movie. It's more complete. I haven't seen that one, but I'll defer to your expertise on that one. Well, anyway, I'm very fond of that movie. Uh, we did have Zach Sklar, the screenwriter, on this program uh, some years back, and we'll, we'll have to talk about it again at some point. It's, I think it's a milestone motion picture. You're just a fan of any conspiracy movie out there. <laughs> <laughs> that, that movie got me started on all this. You know what? The only conspiracy I'm aware of is that there's secret funding from BP Oil to finance uh, Radio Parallax. It's the only... <laughs> That's the only conspiracy oh, that boy. I'm interested in. You've ripped the cover off of our secret. <laughs> Better put a cap on that one, baby. Oh, brother. All right, Matt Perry, film uh, film critic, uh, health writer. Uh, we'll just agree to disagree on sports, but we'll have to talk movies uh, again in the future because we, we're on the same page on that one. I would be happy to anytime. All right. All right, before we go to break, though, i got one final item here about an actor, so I guess it sort of segues to this segment. Uh, apparently, Morgan Freeman... According to The Week magazine, remembers the moment he decided to pursue acting. Based on an article by Louise Gannon in the London Daily Mail, apparently the 73-year-old actor grew up in Mississippi with the dream of becoming either an actor or a fighter pilot. In the 1950s, he made his decision and enlisted in the Air Force. He said, it wasn't easy. As a young black man, I had to fight to be a pilot, be twice as good, be three times as sharp, and four times as focused. After five years in the military, he finally got a shot in the cockpit, and his goal of becoming a fighter pilot appeared to be within reach. But he was, as he was preparing to take off on his first flight with the trainer, something unexpected happened. Said Freeman, quote, I climbed into the cockpit and thought, this is my dream. This is it. Then I looked down at my hands on the wheel, and I had this sudden realization that the whole point of this machine was to kill people. At that moment, Freeman said he figured out what his true aspiration was. He said, I realized I didn't want to be actually killing people. My dreams were about war movies, not war. I wanted to act as a fighter pilot, not be one. Of course, I have no way of knowing what kind of a pilot uh, Morgan Freeman would have become, but, uh, you know, I think he made the right choice. He's a damn fine actor, and there's probably no better narrative voice out there for documentaries than Mr. Morgan Freeman. And on that note, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. They're gonna put me in the movies. They're gonna make a big star out of me. We'll make a film about a man that's sad and lonely. And all I gotta do is 